0: One of the most famous images in the history of philosophy is the image of Plato's cave, the cave allegory in the Republic. Some of you may have covered this in school or in some other context, but it's very important to get a handle on what is going on in the cave allegories. That's what I want to talk to you about today. The cave allegory is in Plato's Republic. The Republic has the subtitle on the just, and it's a dialogue about justice what is justice so you have these various characters trying to get to the bottom of the question what is justice each in their own way and their speeches about the topic what is justice are important and so is what actually goes on in the dialogue itself but I'm going to put all of that to the side right now just to focus on the context in which that cave allegory arises so the first thing I want to call your attention to is that the cave is described as an image of our nature in its education and lack of education. Again, what is the topic of the cave allegory? What is it meant to depict? It depicts our nature in its education and lack of education. Keep that in mind as we go forward. So the question of the Republic is, what is justice? And in order to develop an answer to that question, Socrates, one of the characters in the Republic, proposes to have a city in speech. So to describe the coming into being of a city in order to see where justice is in the city as you, as you discuss or give a verbal account of its genesis, of the city's genesis. The city in speech that Socrates and the other characters in the Republic develop culminates in the following suggestion which Socrates hesitates to make because it's so radical and so strange. Unless the philosophers rule as kings or those now called kings and chiefs genuinely and adequately philosophize and political power and philosophy coincide in the same place, while the many natures now making their way to either political power or philosophy apart from the other Are by necessity excluded. There is no rest from ills for the cities, nor, I think, from humankind, and nor will the best regime, the one discussed in the Republic, come forth from nature. In other words, unless the kings philosophize and unless philosophers take political power upon themselves, you'll have no rest from ills for the cities or for humankind. The rule of the philosophers is the third wave or third difficulty Socrates must address when discussing the nature of the just city. The other waves or obstacles that he must overcome are the equality of men and women and the community of wives and children. The community of wives and children means that no one has a private spouse or private children. With everyone he happens to meet, Socrates says, He'll hold that he's meeting a brother, a sister, or a father, a mother, or a son, or a daughter, or their descendants and ancestors. In other words, rather than factions always at war with one another, rather than political polarization and a toxic political environment, there will be a sense of family solidarity and unity across the city with everyone sharing equally in pleasures and pains, calling the same things pleasurable and the same things painful. Now, it's unlikely that that's what actually happens in a family, that everybody's pained and pleased about the same things, or that there's quite the sense of unity. But that's besides the point. In discussing the genesis of the just city in speech, these two waves, the equality of men and women and the common um, community of wives and children, are two important parts of the picture. We set those aside to come to the third wave, the most serious and significant challenge for the just city, according to Socrates, the rule of the philosophers. Now, before we can even proceed to understanding the significance of the rule of the philosophers, we must understand who, for Socrates, are the philosophers. In a discussion before the cave allegory in the book, the philosopher is described as someone who loves not opinion, but rather what each thing is in itself. Well, what's the difference between opinion, on one hand, and what each thing is in itself on the other? In the image of the cave, which we'll get to, opinion is the realm of shadows on the wall. They have some degree of reality and existence. In other words, they're not pure nothingness. But they have a lesser degree of reality than the objects inside the cave casting the shadows, and an even lesser degree of reality when compared to the truly existing reality, that domain of being that the image depicts as objects outside the cave. Opinions, Socrates says, roll around somewhere between non-being and being purely and simply. Opinions only half exist. They're between true existence and non-existence. They have some degree of reality and existence. They're not pure nothingness, but they have a lesser degree, as I said, than the objects inside the cave. Okay, cut that. Knowledge is knowledge of being. The beings that most truly exist in Plato are called the ideas. An idea in Plato is not something in your head You had a great idea. Or, hey, I have an idea. Let's go do something. Rather, idea is the name for the beings that most truly exist. We all have opinions about matters of importance to politics, like justice. But they're just opinions hanging in the balance between being and non-being. Existence and non-existence. Like shadows on the wall of the cave. It's only when we can see justice itself, the idea of justice, that being or existence called justice, with that part of ourselves or that part of our souls capable of perceiving such beings, namely our intellect, only when we see being with our intellect can we have knowledge of what justice is. The lover of knowledge is distinct from the lovers of hearing and lovers of sights. Lovers of hearing and lovers of sights, Socrates says, delight in fair sounds and colors and shapes and all that craft makes from such things. But their thought is unable to see and delight in the nature of the beautiful itself. In other words, they may love beautiful music, beautiful pictures, beautiful people. But they can't raise their intellect to the perception of beauty itself. They believe that there are beautiful things, but they don't know anything about beauty itself and might even deny that there is such a thing. In contrast to them, the lover of knowledge believes that there is something beautiful itself And is able to catch sight both of it and of what participates in it. In other words, the lover of knowledge, the philosopher, knows both the pure form or pure idea of the thing. Again, idea not like something that you have in your head, but the most what that thing is in its truest existence, beauty itself, and also everything that it makes beautiful. Likewise, justice itself and everything that it makes just. In other words, justice and all of the just things. That's what the philosopher knows. Now, if philosophers are those who are able to grasp what is always the same in all respects, while those who are not able to do so, but wander among what is many, and varies in all ways, are not philosophers. So which of these two should be the leaders of a city? On one hand, the philosophers who know what is always the same, justice itself, beauty itself, or those people who just see what now happens to be beautiful, what varies and is manifold. Which of these two types of people should be the leader of a city and why? A city has laws. Who is more likely to know which laws are right for the city? And who is more likely to keep watchful guard over the laws? The lover of sights and sounds, who dwells with the many always changing things, or the lover of knowledge. Well, let's see. Laws should be, according to Socrates, about the fine, just, and good. And they should be rightly given. But can someone who doesn't know the fine, the just, and the good themselves make law about these things? In other words, you want your laws to be good. You want your laws to be just. you want your to be you want your laws to be just. But if you don't know justice, can you make sure that your laws are just? It's like a painter, it's kind of like a painter who's never seen or heard about an apple trying to paint an apple. The painter does not have an original on the basis of which to make a copy. For the lawmaker, the original, in this sense, is the idea the idea of justice? But it's the lo- it's the lover of knowledge who knows the ideas. So it's the lovers of knowledge who are the most suitable lawmakers. In other words, a lawgiver gives law with an eye to the justice of the law. The laws should embody justice in the same way that a, f- a pa- painting of an apple should, in some sense, embody or reflect. Something about an apple. Well, that painting can only do so if there's some familiarity with the apple. And a just law can only be just if there's some familiarity with justice. Peak familiarity is knowledge of justice. But it's the philosophers who possess such knowledge, according to Socrates. So in book six of the Republic, like chapter six, except it's divided not into chapters, but into what are called books, in book six of the republic, Socrates discusses the character of the lovers of knowledge. They're let's say, moral character, their makeup, their constitution. So they hate falsehood. They strive for truth. They are moderate with respect to money and bodily desires. They avoid petty speech. They're not afraid of death because they contemplate all time and all being. They learn well and have good memory and their understanding is endowed with measure and charm. When such men, Socrates asks, are perfected by education and age, wouldn't you turn the city over to them alone? In other words, they ha- just think about what he just said. A philosopher, someone who strives for knowledge of the ideas, for knowledge of the most truly existing reality, being itself, not for those fan- phantoms uh, of being that exists halfway between true existence and non-existence. So they hate falsehood. They're not interested in trying to uh, they're not interested in trying to deceive you. They're not interested in trying to put up smoke screens. They strive for and love the truth. They're moderate in their money and bodily desires. They're not likely to have a financial scandal or a sex scandal. They avoid petty speech. They don't fear death. They remember well. They're educated. They have measure and charm in their understanding. Socrates gives the image of a ship. Each sailor wants to pilot the ship. Even though, as Socrates says, he has never learned the art of navigation and can't produce his teacher or Or prove there was a time when he was learning it. So everybody wants to be the sailor, but nobody has demonstrated, nobody has the ability to demonstrate that they know how to sail or that they've ever learned how to sail. Nevertheless, everybody wants to be the sailor. They do everything to try to get into the driver's seat. Sometimes if they fail at persuasion and other people succeed at it, they'll kill those others or throw them off the ship. So if they can be persuasive to get... uh, If they can be persuasive in taking control of the ship, they will. And if they can't, they'll just resort to violence. They enchain the ship owner and take control of the ship. And they call skilled and pilot, they call skilled sailor and pilot, the man who is clever at figuring out how to get the rule. In other words, they don't call sailor the person who possesses the knowledge of how to sail a ship. They don't call pilot the person who possesses the knowledge of how to pilot the ship. They give these names, sailor and pilot, to the people who are most clever in throwing other people overboard, killing them, or persuading them. They don't know, Socrates says, that for the true pilot, it's necessary to pay careful attention to the year, to the seasons, heavens, stars, winds, and everything that's proper to the art of sailing. To truly be skilled at ruling a ship, Socrates is saying, you must have the art of navigation. You must at least know some astronomy. You can't just be successful in throwing people overboard. With such things happening on ships, Socrates says, don't you believe that the true pilot will really be called a stargazer? A, A useless person to those who sail? A useless person? to the people who sail on ships, run like he just described, if everybody just wants to be piloting the ship and nobody gives a damn about the correct way of doing it, the person who's studying the stars, the heavens, that person is going to seem useless completely, like a knucklehead. Well, that's the attitude of the many, for Socrates, towards the argument that philosophers should rule. The many are like the unruly sailors, each trying to become the pilot of the ship, each lacking appreciation for the knowledge necessary to do that, like knowledge of the seasons, the stars, and winds. And they mock the philosopher, the true pilot, the one possessing the knowledge for navigation of the ship of state. In this context of the Republic comes the image of the cave as an image of our nature in its education and want of education. So I've said, they're discussing what is justice. In order to answer the question, what is justice? They describe the coming into being of a city, a city in speech. They talk a city into existence to try to identify where justice is. In the course of speaking about what the just city would have to be, they overcome the objection. That it can only truly be just if there's equality of men and women, a community of wives and children. And now, the most difficult problem that philosophers should be kings and kings should be philosophers. It was necessary to describe what a philosopher is someone who has knowledge of true being, not just of intermediary being, which is between existence and non existence. Something about the character of the philosopher, as we described, remembers well, is moderate in speech, and so on. And now we have the image of the cave. In the cave Imagine a cave Prisoners are chained They can't move They can't turn around They can't see other people Or themselves In other words, there's no self-knowledge And there's no knowledge of anybody else True knowledge of anybody else They can only see the shadows Of themselves and others And shadows of artifacts On procession along the wall in front of a fire so behind the prisoners in the cave a fire is burning and there's a procession in front of that fire of objects and other artifacts casting the shadows on the wall well they don't see that fire they don't see those objects they only see the shadows and if they discuss the shadows they don't discuss them as shadows but as real they don't know their shadows Such men, Socrates says, would hold that the truth is nothing other than the shadows of artificial things. Now someone is released and compelled to stand up, to turn and walk toward the light. He's in pain, dazzled and at a loss when someone tells him that the things he now sees are more real than the shadows he saw before. If he's compelled to look at the light, at the fire burning behind him, his eyes would hurt and he would flee and turn toward the familiar shadows he's used to distinguishing. And if he were dragged right out of the cave, he would be unable to see anything of the things he now takes to be true. His eyes would have to adjust to the shadows outside, the shadows on the ground, Then to the reflections of things in water, like the reflection of a tree in a lake. And then to things, not just to their reflections. To the stars and to the moon at night. And eventually to the sun itself, getting to know the seasons, like the true pilot in the image of the ship. So again, first he's chained at the bottom of the cave, seeing only the shadows of objects that are cast in front of a fire. It turned around to see the fire. He'll flee back to his shadows. But if you manage to drag him all the way out of the cave, his eyes will have to adjust first to the shadows, then to the reflections, then to the objects like trees, then at night, to the moon and to the stars and only finally to the sun. And in this state, he would consider himself happy. And he would pity the prisoners in the cave. He would no longer want the honors associated with knowledge of the shadows. If he had to go back into the cave, he would be the object of laughter because his eyes would not have adjusted yet to the darkness and he would be talking nonsense from the perspective of the prisoners. Wouldn't it be said of him, Socrates asks, that he went up and came back with his eyes corrupted? And that it's not even worth trying to go up? And if they were somehow able to get their hands on and kill the man who attempts to release and lead up, wouldn't they kill him? Socrates says the shadows are like our regular sight. So this is now a bit of an explanation that Socrates himself gives in the context of this discussion. Such a rich image that can be understood in so many ways. But one of the ways that he explains it is that the shadows in in the cave are like our regular sight. You see me now. Look around the room. Socrates says your natural vision is akin to the vision of the prisoners in the cave who see shadows. The light of the fire, he says, is like the sun's power. It makes things visible for us, just like our artificial light does in this room and in your rooms. And the sun outside of the cave is the idea of the good. Remember, the truly existing outside of ourselves, truly existing highest embodiment or rather the thing itself the good, the highest source of intellectual light and the source of existence for the most existent beings. Now, that's, that's abstract sounding, that's obscure sounding, but what he's saying is that the things that you can perceive not with your eyes but with your intellect are of a greater degree of reality. And just like the artificial light in your room or the sunlight in the sky makes visible for you those things that you see with your eyes, so does the idea of the good make visible for your intellect those things that it perceives. So imagine that the intellect is the eye. The object of intellection is the things that you see with that eye. And the idea of the good is that which casts the light that allows the mind to perceive the intellectual objects. Now, I'm going to read you a passage in which Socrates applies this image to the definition of education. Education, he says, is not what the professions of certain men assert it to be. Education is not what it's commonly said to be. They presumably assert that they put into the soul, or, you know, into that, into our intellect, put into the soul knowledge that isn't in it, As though they were putting sight into blind eyes. But the present argument indicates that this power, the power of seeing with our intellect, is in the soul of each. We already possess the power of being able to see with our intellect. People don't put sight into our minds. We already possess the power of intellectual vision. And that the instrument with which each learns, just as an eye, is not able to turn toward the light From the dark Without the whole body In other words Socrates says If you're going If you're facing the dark And you want to turn Towards the light Like a prisoner in a cave You must actually Turn your body around Well The instrument With which we learn Our intellect Our soul Must be turned around From that which is Coming into being Together with the whole soul Until it is able to Endure looking at that Which is and that the brightest part of that which is. In other words, because I believe a clarification here will be necessary. That which is coming into being, that means things that are between existence and non-existence. The domain of change, of half-reality. The gray zone between light and darkness. That's what coming into being means. Coming into being is a change from non-being to being. In other words, becoming is the realm where things don't fully and truly exist yet they're in a process of change that's the domain of instability variation variety multitude and so on and socrates is saying true knowledge is knowledge not of the things that are in the domain of becoming but of things that are fully in the domain of being things that are constantly and always and we must reorient ourselves it's a whole existential reorientation towards that which is and as he says the brightest part of that which is in other words education is not putting knowledge into the head putting knowledge putting sight into the eyes education is when a teacher helps you to reorient your soul from the world of becoming toward the world of being to the highest part of that which exists The founders of the just city, according to Socrates' argument, must compel the best natures to go study what is. And just to help give you an understanding, in the Republic, I'm not going to talk about it now in detail, but in the Republic, Socrates elaborates the course of education that a potential philosopher would undergo in order to move their souls from the world of becoming to the world of being for instance the study of mathematics study of mathematical objects okay the study of astronomy not with an eye to the planets themselves as things that are changeable but rather with an eye to constancy to the discovery of constant With an eye to the discovery of constant patterns, of, ge- of geometrical patterns, and so on. That type of education habituates us, habituates our souls and our intellects to constant constancy. Numbers in themselves do not come into being. They just are. So the study of number helps reorient us to being rather than to becoming. Now the founders, as I was saying, of the just city must compel the best natures to go study what is. But the founders must not permit the lovers of knowledge to remain outside the cave. So once somebody who's very amenable to such an education is educated beyond what seems to be, but it's just the shadows of the cave, into true existence and is happy in that state, the political founder must not allow the philosopher to remain there saying as follows you have been better and more perfectly educated and are more able to participate in both philosophical and political lives than others so you must go down each in his turn into the common dwelling of the others And get habituated along with them to see the dark things. And in getting habituated to the dark things, you will see 10,000 times better than the men there. And you'll know what each of the phantoms is and of what it is a phantom. In other words, you'll know what the shadows are and of what they're shadows once you've made the journey out of the cave and back as the people who just dwell there will take the shadows as realities. You will have seen the truth about fair, beautiful, just, and good things. And thus, the city will be governed by us in the city of speech. That means by the legislators and the founders and by you, the philosophers who returned to the cave first to undergo this philosophical existential transformation and then return to the dwelling of common men. The city will be governed by us and by you in a state of waking, not in a dream, as the many cities nowadays are governed by men who fight over shadows with one another and form factions for the sake of ruling, as though it were some great good. The truth is surely this. That city in which those who are going to rule are least eager to rule is necessarily governed in the way that is best and freest from faction, while the one that gets the opposite kind of rulers in other words, the ones who very much want to be in power, is governed in the opposite way. Think about it. Those who want to be in power are like those fighting to take control of the ship with no knowledge of navigation. They're those who are in love with the shadows and with the honors that come from the shadows, according to this analysis. The ones least eager to rule are the ones who have tasted the greatest alternative to life in the cave, namely the free life outside the cave, in the sun. But they must be compelled to go back down. That, my friends, in a nutshell, is the image or allegory of the cave in Plato's Republic, which describes why, in Socrates' view, philosophers must become kings, and kings must become philosophers. Because otherwise, You'll have shadows regulating shadows, the blind leading the blind on one hand. And on the other hand, you'll just have the island of the blessed, the philosophers outside of the cave basking in the light of the sun. Remember what that image means? It means that their intellects are perceiving the highest objects of intellection. There must be a combination where those who know the true reality go back to give laws in the model of the true reality like a painter who knows an apple and is able truly to depict it you can project many aspects of political thought political ideas onto the image of the cave for example just to give you one example medieval political philosophy thought of prophets and prophecy in part as the perfection of the intellect and of the imagination so that your intellect has become so perfect that it can see, like your eye, the highest objects of intellection, the highest intellectual objects, like what is the good, what is the true, what is the just, what is the beautiful. And then it can fashion that knowledge and form that knowledge for the benefit of the many through the faculty of imagination. Imagination not like you're thinking something up from groundless chaos, but like you're putting the light of the truth, of the just and of the beautiful, into an image, a rich image saturated with meaning. Just like the image of the ship that Socrates gave to describe politics and the desire for rule. And just like the image of the cave, So a prophet is someone whose intellect is perfected and imagination is perfected and who can therefore convey through law, through a divine law, in the image of law, the actual truth of reality and existence, the idea of the good, the idea of just, the idea of the beautiful. Medieval political scientists interpreted the philosopher king, who in Plato's presentation is a future possibility, as the prophet philosopher, the bringer of a divine code, a past reality. This image is so rich and this text is so masterful that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the surface. But I hope that you can see from this presentation, at least a little bit about this image, the image of the cave or the allegory of the cave in Plato's Republic. If you're not familiar with it, welcome to this beautiful world. And if you are familiar with it, I hope that these comments have illuminated or elucidated some aspects of of that account that you may not have known before. Thank you very much for watching. If you like these videos, subscribe, share them, Leave your comments below. Thanks for watching.